Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of Strive. We're a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of. In our weekly meetings, we share keystone habits that can change the lives of the other entrepreneurs in the group. And now I want to share those habits with you. Each week, you'll get access to what we call the teachable moment. And that focuses on improving the quality of our health, wealth, and relationships. Today, I'm really fortunate to be joined by Chris Salmon. Chris currently helps senior leaders design and deliver sustainable programs around strategy, governance, organizational performance, and leadership. He's previously served as the UK Crown Servant within the UK intelligence community. Chris currently serves the community as chair with the Provincial Emergency Medical Services Foundation in Alberta, and he previously served as police commissioner and vice chair with the Calgary Police Commission. Chris is also on the advisory board for change management programs at Mount Royal University. Chris is a graduate of the University of London, the University of Manchester, and the University of Wales. He is also a member of the Institute of Corporate Directors and the proud holder of the Freedom of the City of London. Chris, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Let's jump right in, my friend. So I want to start off with your experience in the charitable world. Can you share what boards you currently serve on? Yeah, so I currently serve um, on the Provincial EMS Foundation Board only, although that's going to probably change soon. I can't talk too much about that. Um, the role of the EMS Foundation is to enhance paramedic care for Albertans. Um, and we're currently going through this very challenging process of transitioning from a municipal to a provincial foundation. Uh, as you say, I've already served on the Calgary Police Commission, that Mount University, Mount Royal University, awesome uh, um, University Board, and the awesome... Calgary, as well as some UK boards. So. so you've served on all of these boards. What is the motivation for you? What drives you? you know, I'm a strong believer in that saying that you know, the meaning of life is to find meaning in your life. And one of the ways in which I find that meaning in my life is this concept or idea that you know, life is a relay race. And the goal is to pass on the baton to those next folks, hopefully better than when you found it. And so how can you use your abilities, your strengths, hopefully have other folks come in that complement your weaknesses and, and kind of make them less, less weaknesses? Um, and how can you really achieve leverage? So what I mean by that is um, with the EMS Foundation here in Alberta, uh, we financially supported the trial of a, um, a powered stretch program. So that was a very small program. I mean, in terms of funding, it wasn't much for us, but the results from uh, that pilot program led to the purchase of a whole bunch, I think it's something like 300, 350 powered stretches throughout Alberta. And now we're reaping the benefit because the back injuries for EMS practitioners is down something like 90%. And so it's the ability to have a small amount of input for a large amount of output. And that's one of the reasons I really like serving on on, on boards. one of the interesting ones, particularly for the police commission, was it was the completion for, <laughs> for the completion of a story arc for me. So <laughs> my, my dad was a police officer who was killed on duty when I was very young, I was five years old. And while I never felt it at the time looking back, I see all these threads of that through my life. So um, you know, here's a police officer that passed away. I started doing business at school, then I ended up going into uh, 
law enforcement and intelligence field, which I worked in in the UK, um, rose to a, a good level there. I moved to Canada in 2009. I sat on the police commission, and that really was the completion of this character arc, if you will. Something that started one of these threads that runs through my life. And for me, the best way to, to help really is to seek that leverage on my skills and abilities and strengths. So that's one of the reasons I like the board work. That was really powerful. I love that quote. The meaning of life is to find meaning in life. That's beautiful. And knowing you, I know that you've already found that. And that just really is a common thread that runs through your life. Mm, thank you. So... I think all of us have had failures and I think it's also so important to learn from those failures. And I know you as somebody who is constantly learning. So I'm hoping that maybe you can share some failures you've had in the charitable world. Yeah, I'd be very wary about talking about failures, but from boards, just from a legal standpoint. But what I will say is that there are common threads where I've seen failures time and time again. And one of those areas generally comes in communication. You know, particularly lack of communication that, you know, we have a whole bunch of people who are incredibly smart, who create some of these incredibly intricate or, in my experience, some of the best strategies are very simple strategies. But what they can't do is they don't work at selling that idea um, or they sell it in a way that really doesn't resonate with, with the audience. And so oftentimes you see challenges around um, in large organizations, like, why do we need to change? And so, you know, I can't often come back to, well, what are we doing about communicating the dissatisfaction about why we need to change? Um, you know, there's a, a, a quote that I love by an uh, economist, Ludwig von Mises, and he talks about the opposite of action isn't inaction, it's contentment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of been talk already on this podcast about things like, um, <coughs> excuse me. A lot of things on this podcast already about uh, facing fear, about kind of getting out of your comfort zone. And again, to me, you know, one of those areas where people often fail isn't because they're not well intentioned. It's just that their degree of comfort doesn't exceed their dissatisfaction about getting making change and making that change happen. I think the other thing as well that's also relevant to this community is um, maybe more in point to your last question about why I serve, but also in terms of failures and and overcoming failures, it's having that community with you, you know, building a community of mutual support that you can challenge each other and you can overcome some of those mental biases that you you generate. Um, I think it's Charlie Munger talks about people operating beyond their circle of competence. And so I think it's really good one, knowing what those boundaries of your competence are, but then making sure you're with a group of folks that can actually complement your weak areas. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to reduce that risk. That's great. Um, yeah, I think that that comes up so often in our Strive group and has in these previous podcasts around having to push your comfort levels in order to achieve things. And if you just stay in your comfort levels, you're never going to achieve anything. I want to turn to you as a person. You've served on all these boards. You've had a really incredible consulting practice. You've done incredible things in the intelligence community. So I just want to turn to you as a person, and I want to get a sense of what you do differently than everyone else. So 
What's your secret to getting so much done? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And now, if I had the answer to that, I, I think I can, I can write a book and retire a multimillionaire. But I, I know what works for me. And I think that what works for me might not necessarily work for everybody. But, I mean, as I understand the role of this podcast, this podcast is an accelerator to help people learn from the lessons of other people and what works and what doesn't. And it's one of those things that, you know, if, if you wear the same watch as Bill Gates and you wake up at the same time as Bill Gates, that's not going to make you Bill Gates. But there might be some things about his routines that resonate with you. And so I often think about how I treat time as a precious resource. Um, you know, from the moment we're born, essentially we're suffering from the disease and that we're, we're dying. <laughs> and so we have a choice about how we use that time. And I think that making intelligent decisions about how we spend that time and being intentful really can make a difference in our lives. You know, how many folks do you know that, they, you know, that they're tired after a long day at work, they come home and they watch some TV and it, it's kind of the, the fast food of life that makes them feel better about themselves. And a lot of folks need that. But also I think there's a lot of folks that feel this discontent they could be doing more and so i think being intentful about how you spend your time mm. is important there tied in with that is i think this whole idea about motivation versus habit you know there's a whole industry out there now about be motivated rah 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 you know motivation only gets you through the door it's habit that keeps you going time and time and time again and so i listened to one of your um, previous podcasts you know dr david kim who's a very clever, very intelligent guy. Now he talks a lot about having schedules. And so, you know, I, I often think about having schedules is a gateway to having a habit. And having a habit is what keeps you going, even when the motivation is gone. So I think that's incredibly important. And I think one of the things I've really had to work hard to develop over the year, years, because sometimes it doesn't come naturally, is an understanding of what's the value that you bring to the table. You know, there's this, uh, oftentimes a lot of um, misperception or miscommunication around, or even just misunderstanding about what is the value that you bring, or even worse for some folks, there's an expectation that they'll get something in exchange, but they don't know what it is they're exchanging for, what's the value they're bringing to the table. So I think you have to have to develop the habit of getting a crystal clear understanding of what it is, the value that you bring. What value do you bring? <laughs> Hopefully it's a different way of thinking about things. Um, I, I try to be uh, unique in some of my perspectives. I think as well that one of those things that I bring, probably as a result of my intelligence background, is, um, is a focus on collecting models. Now, some people collect models, they collect you know, toy soldiers or you know, they paint up battleships. I collect mental models. And so mental models oftentimes are ways to overcome biases. They are ways to find a way forward where there seems to be no way forward. And I'm a great fan as well of a guy called George Box. He says that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Hmm. And so sometimes having an ideology that's flawed is still better than having no ideology or no methodology that you can bring to a problem. And so sometimes just thinking about developing a process, even realizing that the process can be flawed, allows you to achieve much more than being a, a pinball bouncing off life's bumpers. Do you have any of those specific models that you can share? 
<laughs> that could be a dangerous question, Jared. We could, be, we could be here for four or five days, but there, there are a whole bunch of models. I think um, one that I would suggest a lot of folks might even do intuitively is um, backcasting. So think about what does good look like and kind of work back from there. You know, rather than what, what are my next steps, my immediate next steps, or what does good look like? Do we have we defined what good looks like? Can we agree what good looks like? Again, that comes down to that communications piece. Um, one of the th- favorite models, I'm not going to get too much into great detail here, but you know, oftentimes people um, assign resistors to change in an organization as you know, not able or they're not willing to achieve change, where nine times out of 10, it's just because they don't know. They don't know what's expected and they don't know how to deliver on what you expect. So there's a whole bunch of models I, I bring to the table there and... Uh, I think that's one of those unique identifiers or unique differences that really help folks get a, a grip or uh, help folks achieve clarity in a very unclear situation. Do you personally have any routines that you credit with giving you more productivity? Is is something that we can look at from the outside, take from you and then implement in our own lives? So having spoken about not, not using tools, now we're going to use tools. And that's good. So, so hopefully someone get, gets some use out of this. So I find what works well for me is um, I like to try where possible to reserve my, my mornings for meetings and my afternoons for kind of deep work. I think I've heard to it referred to once as going into monk mode. Mm-hmm. Kind of go into monk mode in the, in the afternoons and just work and focus on specific issues. Um, I like to also schedule time and to be strategic. So one of the things I, I learned from my career in, in leadership um, and management was that you could drive into work with the best plan for the day. But within about two minutes of you arriving and all the emails and the phone calls and people come to see you, that plan's gone. Yeah. And if you don't make some ring-fenced time to be strategic, you're always going to be on the back foot reacting rather than being proactive. I think one of the other things I try and do is try and be um, as regular as possible in how I spend my time. I think it kind of comes back down to this developing a habit. Um, Just so I kind of know roughly what I'm doing, although I try not to schedule too tightly because I want to build in time to be spontaneous into my agenda. Because there's nothing so bad as... Hey, Jared, I've got this great idea. And I'm like, and I look at my 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 uh, my calendar. And I'm that's great. Let's get together in six months' time. Yeah. It's kind of like um, also things like making time for celebration. I, I can't think of anything worse than, hey, Jared, we won the softball league. Let's celebrate in two weeks' time, right? You want to celebrate there and then while you're still excited. Yes. And so, how do you find the balance? And a lot of leadership is about finding balance between structure, organization, and habit, and being spontaneous and being open to um, to new opportunities, new ideas, uh, opportunities to celebrate. And I think the trick there is, as, as terrible as it might sound, scheduling time to be spontaneous or mm-hmm. making sure that you're not, you're being deliberate about not overbooking yourself. Uh, I think the, the last one, this is a very tactical granular habit, is uh, I have a Fitbit, uh, Fitbit uh, Charge 3, and it has this great um, function on it, which is 
10 minutes before the end of the hour, it'll buzz you as a reminder to move for your, your walking minutes. And what I actually do is I actually use that in my face-to-face meetings. If I have an hour-long meeting, I'm not checking my watch every five minutes. I know that I can engage with people, I can write notes, I can look them in the eye and have a good conversation. Then when my wrist buzzes, that's time for me to start wrapping up the meeting and agreeing those actions before I move on. That's really nice. So I'm not sitting there looking at Jared, trying to talk about a hard issue, and every five seconds I'm looking at my watch to make sure I'm respecting both of our times. So that's a very granular habit that something that I find works very well for me. I really like that. Uh, And listeners, if you want to be more like Chris Salmon, (laughs) then you have to get a Fitbit Charge 3. Um, I want to touch back on two things that you mentioned there. So number one was you you said that you schedule your afternoons for deep work. Can you just talk briefly about what does that actually look like? Where does that happen? What kind of work happens in those hours? Um, I'm I'm a very visual thinker. I... I love using whiteboards too much. It, mm. it kind of looks like a, a beautiful mind it's been compared to sometimes. <laughs> uh, and my handwriting at the best of times is, is, would qualify me to be a doctor. It's, <laughs> it's all over the place. And so um, I like to, to think things through. I like to try and tie things back to models where possible. Uh, or at least use the models to start building structure. And trying to be deliberate up front about what I'm trying to achieve before I leap to tools because I find that if you leap to tools straight away, it shapes the outcome because it's, you know, uh, the old saying that, you know, if you only tools a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yes. So I think that making sure you're deliberate up front about what does good look like, what is it you're trying to achieve really helps guide those sessions. And I find the best way for me Jeremy seems to be a whiteboard or I always carry a notebook. That's my, one of my top tip for, tips mm. for any entrepreneur or anyone in business is always carry a notebook. Um, write notes by hand where possible because uh, although you might not be able to read your writing, I find that writing notes helps you concentrate on what people are saying. Um, and it's a very good habit to be in because the number of ideas that get lost between someone thinking it and someone writing it down is probably one of the biggest tragedies in human history how much time would you dedicate to those deep work sessions as much as as much really as the work requires um you know i I like to try and work in 45 minute chunks where possible i find that anything more than 45 minutes and my brain either turns to mush or i end up um getting caught up in the problem so often what I'll do is I'll do 45 minutes and then maybe go for a walk, get a drink, something like that, and come back. And uh, <clears throat> sometimes I use standing desks, sometimes I use sitting desks. Uh, to me, what's probably the biggest crutch that I lean heavily on is the use of the whiteboard. Another thing that you mentioned is that you schedule in strategic sessions. Can you just speak briefly about that? Um, it, it's very much like the deep work sessions, but it's, I'd say, probably shorter Usually at the start of the week, um, the end of the week. So, you know, what am I doing um, this week? What am I doing next week? And each day maybe a bit more of a, a more tactical one of, you know, what do I achieve today? What do I want to achieve tomorrow? Just to make sure that I'm not getting off track. Um, again, really trying to understand the nature of the problem. And I find that writing it down helps too. Um, there's an old saying, I'm full of old sayings today, but <laughs> one of the old sayings that I like is that um, 
Ideas don't change the world, actions do. And I think you need the ideas to help shape and steer the, the actions. But again, you need to get this stuff down, you need to be able to execute. So I, th- I find that having some form of you know, action capture really helps because you know, take those big ideas, put them through a series of filters until they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they become tactical and achievable items that you can just write on a list and then cross them for list. Is there anything that we could do to make ourselves more strategic? Book the time. Mm. You know, I, I often say to people, one of my one of my quotes I'm often misquoted on or quoted on it is that, you know, it's so much easier to go from one point one to one point two than it is to go from zero to one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sometimes you really don't need to design to perfection before you do something. Just do it. And knowing that it will be weak, suboptimal, poor. But at least you're doing something which is more than not doing it in the first place. And so things like writing down, things like um, <clears throat> your guiding principles for what you want to achieve. Writing down things like um, what's the mental model you're using and how are you going to test them this week to see if they're still valid. Things like that that you can just, you know, you can kind of come back to but making the time just to think is so critically important and something that a lot of folks tend to miss out on because they either do it as like a drive-by or in a car on the way back but then they're thinking about other stuff too and trains of thought get lost i think one interesting thing that we've learned about habits recently in strive is that you really have to start small if you want to start something new so for an example our teachable moment last week was on meditation and the task that everybody had for the week was to meditate for five days, but for meditate to meditate just for three minutes at a time. And so I think that there's importance to building those habits in just a small way. Um, so I think that that kind of goes to your point. Absolutely. I mean, if you go to meditation, I don't know of anyone who can go from nothing to a one hour meditation session a day and make it stick beyond a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you need to work your way into your optimal state of being something that works well for you. That's just called falling asleep for an hour. That's called falling asleep. I yeah. think the other problem, particularly I, I find in the city I find myself, which is Calgary, Alberta, is that you know there's a strong engineering bias in Calgary, mm. and so there's this tendency to design to perfection. Mm. And then what ends up happening is people aren't getting things going because they're still trying to design to perfection. So it's about getting something Just out there. get something going. It's easier to iterate than it is to get something going in the first place. Yeah, I love that. I want to take a second here to, to look externally because you've got so much experience in the strategic world. I'm, lots of entrepreneurs come across your path. So is there something that you see when you look externally to other entrepreneurs is there something that holds those folks back from achieving their goals? Is there a common thread there? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I mean, when I think about you know, some of the challenges faced, faced by entrepreneurs is, you know, this taking the time to be deliberate, I think is a very important one. You know, that... It's very easy for life to force you into reaction mode, particularly if you're worrying about like the bills or the money or growing your customer base or scaling. And so it's very easy to get drawn into this game of whack-a-mole 
mm. where things are happening to you rather than, than you're making things happen. I think the other thing as well is, you know, just it almost shouldn't have to be said, but I feel like I have to say it to people so many times is Instagram is not reality. You know, if you're playing the game of keeping up with the Joneses, that's a game that there's always going to be someone younger, better looking, more socially influential, whatever it is than you. Like, that's not a game you're set up to win from the get-go. So use Instagram smartly. Use it as a marketing tool, however you want to use it. But you need to do it with a sense of, um, you know, what's the reality behind what I'm seeing? I'm only seeing one side of the story here. And, you know, one of the mental models I often use is survivorship bias. You know, mm. we often hear about these great success stories, but we very rarely hear about all the failures on the way. And so, you know, you have these opportunities to, I don't want to say win or lose, it's win or learn. I think that's another important mentality for entrepreneurs is this. It's not losing, it's learning. You know, but again, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the neighbours, it's, it's, a, it's a losing game. And I think the last one really is about habits. Developing the habits that work for you and being intentful and going to the reason why the principles before you leap to the tools. That's awesome. I love that winner-learn philosophy as, as opposed to the winner-lose philosophy. I know you, Chris, as somebody who's been a successful investor over the years. I just, I don't know if you're willing to share this, but are you focused on anything in the investing world? Um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a couple of things I, I would kind of want to talk about there. I mean, um, I, I think hopefully one of the themes you've kind of you've you've heard through this interview is this idea about developing a model. I think that really refers to the listener as well, which is spend time developing your own model for investing and test it at every opportunity that you get. And so, you know, two things I would say particularly about that. Uh -huh. think about why you're investing are you investing or are you speculating is it long term is it short term mm -hmm. we know there's a whole lot of success you can get by being long term but I think that if you have an investment model and practice that's different from your mismatched to your intention you're going to be set up for failure I think the other thing as well is to be careful about the new hotness and there's a model out there called the, the Gartner cycle which I, I'd recommend anyone I'll give Jared, the, the links for the, the podcast, but this idea of, you know, things come along that it's the new hotness, it's the new sexy, and it, it takes off. And there's, there's, a, there's a path to these things where they take off, they're super exciting for a period of time, then reality sets in, they kind of go through a bit of a trough, and then they become established and normalized again. You can see some of this in the path that things like Bitcoin has taken, right. for example, where, you know, um, not saying that investment in that is a bad thing, but I am saying know where it is in the cycle. On the Gartner cycle would probably set your listeners up for success. But I'd also remind them that I'm not a financial advisor. So taking advice to me is probably a bad idea. But I think, <laughs> I think that's the thing. But the other thing I think about is some of the risks that are out there in the marketplace right now. Um, you know, one of the things that really kind of worries me right now in broad terms is that, you know, I'm a big believer that you can't fight demographics. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we've seen time and time again is this concept of super cycles, a boom and bust. And we are pretty overdue for a, a bust period. And so I think about things like levels of corporate debt. I think that really concerns me. Um, you know, 
household debt? Well, I think corporate debt because I, I think I see you know 2009 when I moved to Canada, I saw this very close in London. Was you know the housing crisis was caused by low interest and easy credit, right? So they were giving people loans they probably shouldn't have been giving people loans to, and we see the same thing now. Oftentimes on the corporate side, there's a growing bubble on the corporate side where it's essentially low interest and easy credit, but to corporations. You know, um, corporate debt to GDP is now at its highest level in all of recorded history. Um, and I think about 50% of that debt, if I recall correctly, is BBB or that kind of that one level above junk debt. Wow. So, uh, you know, I know there are very smart people, a lot smarter than me, thinking about this at very high levels. But I am kind of watching that corporate debt piece to see how that changes over time. So that, that's probably the biggest thing I worry about right now. Yeah, debt levels in general are scary, I think. Yeah. Um, you are currently working as a consultant, right, for Evolve Partners. You had your own consulting firm and now you're with Evolve. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that work right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think... It's interesting as well. We talked before about having a good community around you. And one of the things I, I really like about working with Evolve is that you know, you're surrounded by people who challenge your thinking. You know, when, when you're the boss and you're doing all this delivery, it's very easy to keep repeating the things that work for you time and time and time again. And so what you're not really doing is improving and learning. And so one of the things that attracted me to uh, Evolve was this concept of being of working with similar passionate people who can challenge you and you can challenge to make a stronger outcome. And I, I like that. It's, I see a lot of parallels with, with the strife. Right? You can challenge each other. You can make people better they, than they were when they came in the door. <clears throat> it's part of that handing on the, the baton, the relay race analogy. Right? You're, you're helping make the next generation uh, better and you're accelerating their learning in the process. Um, I'm not sure I, did. I answered your question though, Jared. No, you did. Uh, because I want to turn to something uh, related to that. And so for somebody like me that doesn't really know about your world, I just want to get a sense because you go into companies and you're trying to improve some outcome for them. Operations, process, change management, something along those lines. And, and companies would have so many different problems. I think my first question is how do you prioritize what you work on first? Oh man, that's, that's, it can always be a challenge. Particularly on day one when you walk in and there's a whole bunch of um, uh, background, research material uh, and all sorts. So I do a lot of work right now with kind of mainly three types of companies, um, energy, chemical companies and and technology. Um, And when I start, think about how I start, I really start with listening, understanding and engaging people. Um, Because sometimes what the client thinks is their problem may not actually be their problem. They might be too close to the problem. They might have been the problem six months ago, but now they're facing a new problem. Um, and hopefully, you know, in my business, by the time that you achieve a sale or what have you, uh, or an agreement to, to proceed, you, know, you would hopefully have a better understanding of the problem. But really, you really need to spend some time making sure that you, you understand the nature of the problem. Um, <clears throat> and there's a real skill in passing large amounts of data. And like all skills, it can just be developed through experience. So kind of going through that. And again, I come back to mental models because mental models are those ways not just to overcome your biases, but also to interpret data and decide on the next action. So, I mean, having exposure to many, many, many mental models allows you to amalgamate, you know, 
what you think might be the issue in on this occasion. So <clears throat> there's a story I like to tell, and uh, stop me if you've heard hmm. it, but it's, it's an old story from India that kind of ended up um, uh, being... Going, going to Afghanistan, which ended up going through some um, into Sufi mythology through Rumi, the poet, <clears throat> talks about the blind monks and the elephant. Have you heard this one? So the idea is that five monks who are blind get led into a room. And they're told, in this room is this mythical creature, an elephant. And so what they have to do is describe the elephant to the king. So one monk fills the, 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 the trunk of the elephant. He goes, aha, the elephant is a hose. One feels a leg. Oh no, the elephant is a, is a tree trunk. One feels the, the elephant's ears. No, 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 the elephant is a fan. Okay, and so, you know, they fight about this. They, they, once it's on the elephant's back, it's a throne. The elephant is a throne. And they fight with this vehemence and vigor and energy and passion about one elephant is, not realizing they're just seeing parts of the whole. <clears throat> and so oftentimes when you go into companies, you know, you come across folks that are exposed to parts of the whole. And like these blind monks, they're, feel, they're you know, seeing this issue. And this issue is a tree trunk. And another manager sees another issue. No, this issue is a fan. Well, actually, no, they're all symptoms mm. of the same issue. And so one of your goals, or one of my goals at least, is to help people see the whole elephant. And I think that mental models are the best way to try and achieve that. Um, <clears throat> again, I come back to the, you know, George Box, not all models are right, but all models are useful. And I think it's, it's worth kind of bearing that in mind. But again, having a methodology is better than not having any methodology at all. And in that vein, I really like to start as well by helping folks come up and communicate guiding principles. You know, can we agree on these things? And can we understand what good looks like? Because if you can't agree on... <clears throat> guiding principles, what good looks like, you're probably not going to agree on much else down the road. The other thing I like about guiding principles are they give you a way forward in an ambiguous situation. When there's no clear line of what to do next, having agreed guiding principles really helps to provide a direction where there is no direction. What would those guiding principles look like? So you can have many. I, I, I try and keep it to somewhere between five and seven at most. I think too many becomes unwieldy. I, I'm a simple guy and I like, to, <laughs> I like to try and put each principle to one finger on a hand. So when I'm explaining to people, I can point with my fingers uh, to my other hand. <clears throat> but something like you know, people come to work wanting to do a good job. You know, can we agree on that? Mm. Can we agree that doing something is better than doing nothing? You know, and, and so... Coming up with that can be is, is usually unique to each client, but it really helps to agree those you know those things those fundamental things before we jump straight into the tools of what we want to try and use to fix the problem. That's excellent. I think I need to come up with my own guiding principles for Strive, so I'm going to make an action item for myself here. But I think the key then is agreeing that with your members. You need to get their input. Can you agree collaboratively? Right. I've got another action item. <laughs> so uh, you go through these companies and um, you obviously have identified, I'm sure, common issues that have come up with, with many of these. Do they fall into operational categories, execution, financial processes? 
Is there one kind of thing that you see as being more common as a cause of failure than others? Um, I generally tend to view it that there's two big buckets. I think one big bucket is what I'd call the work. So, you know, processes, you know, uh, procedures, driving to results, whatever it might be. And I think the other big bucket is the behaviours. And so oftentimes I talk about things like, um, and sometimes they, those things meet. So a good example of that might be meetings, for example. You can have the best, most beautifully designed meeting in the world, but if those behaviours around things like accountability aren't there, it's still going to be a suboptimal meeting. Mm. And so I think that a lot of issues that companies face, it's usually not just the work, not just the behaviours, but usually some interface or combination of the, of the two. Um, and usually in those realms around strategy, governance, organisational performance, um, alignment comes up time and time and time again. Um, alignment, between. alignment between where the leaders want the business to go and how that gets interpreted throughout the chain towards the front line where the work actually happens. You know, and you can have people all throughout that chain thinking they're achieving the optimal, most desired outcome, but somehow in the mix they're not. Mm-hmm. So we talked about from a corporate perspective, what are those common causes of failures, which I think transitions into the next question of how do entrepreneurs stop those same things from happening to themselves? So my question is, what are the key skills that young entrepreneurs should really be focusing on building? I I think that's a really awesome question. I I, I see it, again, I'm going to put my usual proviso in there that you've heard time again about building, collecting, and testing your mental models. I think that's super important. Um, I think that one of the keys was understanding your value to others. So, you know, particularly entrepreneurs, it's very easy to get hung up on the dollars. Sometimes because not many dollars are rolling in. (laughs) Sometimes um, because hopefully a nice problem to have is there's too many dollars rolling in. But I think that understanding your value to others. So, you know, I think about in the consulting world, one of my big changes over the years, and this isn't a recent thing, but over the years has been <clears throat> moving away from this focus on billable hours towards a focus on providing value. And if you provide value, the billable hours will come by themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're providing true value to your customer, there'll be a way to make money from that. But do you understand, one, who your customer is, and two, what is the true value you're providing to them? Because if you're providing a value to them that's different from the one that's in your head, that imbalance, that lack of alignment, is going to cause you uh, challenges down the road, to put it mildly. Um, I think as well, you know, attracting people outside um, your circle of competence. So whether that can be people that work with you or for you, or uh, I'm a big fan of having a board of advisors, I think you're having a board of advisors, people that think differently from you, maybe people that have experienced the same challenges, get some mentorship. Mm-hmm. That could be a coaching relationship, that can be a board of mentors, that could be people that work for you, but people that don't think the same way that you do. Because, you know, as awesome as Jared is, a company with copy and paste of Jared is a nightmare. Well, it's a nightmare, but yeah. it will <laughs> fail because who's going to challenge you if everyone thinks the same way that you do? 
right? And so you need those dissenting opinions. And I see that oftentimes in my board work. You need dissenting opinions to produce a stronger product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've always really admired that about you, Chris, is that you always are willing to hear those dissenting opinions in order to get to that result. Because people can say, we want dissenting opinions, we want people to, to challenge us on certain things, but the actual follow-through on that is a very different thing. And mm-hmm. you have mastered it. Oh, thank you. That's, it's nice. and, and it's, it's something you, I think, it's a skill that you can develop and you can deliberately provoke people into dissenting deliberately over time that that's not their natural space. And I think just being mindful that everyone thinks, learns, communicates differently. Um, I think the other thing I'd, I'd suggest to, to entrepreneurs, and this is a, a more recent thing for me, is understanding that sales is a process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, and, and also as a process that's going to be integral to everything that you do. I think one of the things I see time and time again is a whole bunch of people that are focused on a technical solution or this exciting thing. And it's almost like sales is the, the ugly stepchild we're going to leave in the room next door. Sales is me. So, well, sales is everybody. Like, so what I do, I'm selling an idea if I'm in a room with someone, right? And that's separate from selling a product. It's separate from, you know, uh, a whole bunch of things. But the truth is, sales has got to be an integral part of what you do. The key to that is understanding value. But I think the other key to it is understanding that sales is a process. And it's, it's come a long way since the 70s and checkered suits and used car lots. Mm-hmm. And I think spending time to understand sales methodologies, processes and testable processes, I think it would set young entrepreneurs up for a lot of success down the road because it's it's a big area. <laughs> One of the guys in our group, he his focus is on heart-centered sales and authentic sales. And mm-hmm. I think that that is where the world is going. And I know that I've always felt that is what, the sentiment that you're expressing where sales is a dirty word. But I also see this other side that's being presented where sales is trying to help people mm-hmm. and just giving them your product and, and showing them how that can benefit them. And I think that's why you really need to understand your value mm-hmm. because the days of sales being a dirty word, being something someone else does in the back office, those days are coming to a close. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the challenge that, that we face is there's a whole bunch of people that are still uncomfortable with sales and that's something that they need to work on. And like any other skill, that you can get you can get good at over time. Yeah, we've spoken about trying to get out of your comfort zone. So if sales is getting out of your comfort zone, I would definitely encourage you to to try working on that. Chris, I want to ask you about secrets. Secrets <laughs> secrets for entrepreneurs. So if somebody wanted to 10x their productivity, what kind of secrets would you offer to them? Um, certainly focus on the value you bring to others before you focus on the dollars. Really spend time understanding that. Uh, correctly identifying who the customer is, I think it's going to be critically important. And I, the next one, I really can't, <laughs> I really can't stress enough. Don't keep changing your approach every day based on the new hotness. Yes, you know um, there are some things that are equally valid from seventy-five years ago than there are from last year. Um, <clears throat> There are so many books released on leadership and entrepreneurism each year. It's so easy to get lost in this, this huge morass of books. 
But like I come back to the story about the blind monks and the elephant, maybe develop, start developing a thinking and an approach that all these people, they're sensing different part of the entrepreneurship elephant. And so your job is to take all these points of view and to synthesize it into something that works for you. Something that's testable and repeatable. And I think that's a, there's a, a, a lot of advantages to that. I think the next thing to do is just be part of a community. You know, I, by be, being with the Strive, like that's, a, that's a huge, great start. But, you know, <clears throat> we like these ideas in our, in our culture of these mythic heroes that take on the monster by themselves and they come back, you know. The truth is, reality is very rarely filled with people who do things solo. Be surrounded by people who want the best for you, <clears throat> are willing to challenge you to achieve the best for you, and that uh, will be there to support you when you're at your lowest ebb. Other stuff, um, get a notebook, collect those actions, <laughs> execute those actions. And I think that, coming back to something I talked about earlier on, develop that mentality of win or learn. Right? And so it's not losing, it's learning, but be deliberate about capturing those learnings and incorporating those learnings into what you can do better next time. This is why you need a model. And Chris, I've taken your advice already because as you're talking, I'm making notes in my notebook. <laughs> so a lesson to all out there. Uh, have you identified any hacks through your consulting practice that you think could improve someone's business, whether that's financial processes, models, etc.? Yeah, I think so. I, there's, man, there's, there's a whole bunch here. I think it, um, I think the first one is, is a pretty big bullet, but you might have to break this one down, which is focus on creating and communicating a vision for your business. You know, keep working to create that dissatisfaction in yourself and in others, and then create and commit to a plan. I think those things are vital. I think that's the only way that, you know, <clears throat> I talked about Von Mises earlier on and, you know, the opposite of action isn't inaction, it's contentment. I think those are the best ways you get out of that sticky space where you don't end up achieving. So again, you know, focus on creating and communicating a vision for your business, create dissatisfaction in yourself and in others, and create and commit to a plan. I think as well, I, I've become a big fan in the last couple of years of this concept that I'm calling, you know, it's not really a novel idea, but something that I'm calling transactional friction. <clears throat> and so the, the thing I think about is if you go to a store and there's 10 tills, but only one is open and there's a lineup of 15 people in that line, you're creating transactional friction, right? In the things that you do, <clears throat> what are you doing either accidentally or deliberately in some cases to create transactional friction from where you want to be. So what makes it harder to buy your product? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and so you know, if people have to go 15 levels deep in your website to buy the product, rather than having a buy sign on page one, you're creating transactional friction. If people want to just try and figure out you know, what are your terms and conditions, and they have to jump through 20 hoops, same problem. Same problem with things like how frustrated are we at things like unsubscribe lists on, on mailing lists and the net result of that is we tell all our friends don't go do this, join this mailing list because you'll never get out. Mm -hmm. right? And that stuff is will hurt you again and again and again. 
I think the last one is that, that idea about creating guiding principles because those guiding principles allow you to have a way forward when you're facing uncertainty. So just spend time being deliberate, creating those guiding principles and spending that time to be strategic. You've spoken quite a bit about the principles piece and I don't know if you've read Ray Dalio Principles. Mm-hmm. You I have, have. yeah. Okay, so what I've done in my life is really for the listeners out there that don't know, Ray Dalio is a hedge fund guy. He's founded the biggest hedge fund in the world, but he's not your traditional hedge fund guy. He is very uh, ethical and principled based, and now he's in the later stage of his life where he's trying to give back his knowledge. And one thing that he attributes to changing his life was implementing and using principles, very much what, what like I think Chris is talking about, where he identified that People, all of us, really struggle with reflecting on our failures. And even if you're someone that thinks that you love to reflect on failures and you love to learn, trust me, you're not. Um, I went through this process of genuinely reflecting on my failures. So failures can be at work where you send an email that maybe you don't want to be sending um, in, in maybe anger. And so genuinely reflecting on that and saying, what do I have to do in the future to stop that from happening? And then that becomes your principle. So if... For example, you want to stop sending emails out of anger. A great principle to live by and one that I've used is the 24-7 principle. So you give yourself 24 hours where you cannot respond to that email and then you you have to respond within seven days or you forget it forever. And so that just stops. Number one is the aggression and number two is the passive aggression where this is something that keeps coming up in your habits time and time again. And so I, I've created a document where I track all of these and I've probably got a hundred of these failures that I've had over the last year. Um, and I actually talk about this. This is one of the chapters in the free ebook that I'm putting together. And um, if you're interested in learning more, I'm going to be putting that together in the next week or so. And um, so keep checking back with Instagram and we'll, we'll have it up there for, for you. So that's great. Um, any advice for young entrepreneurs out there outside of what you've just touched on? I think that's a pretty good list. I, I think as well, there's a talking about what's old is new again. There's a there's an old book. Um, and I'm going to give you the the praise here. Which it's called uh, I think it's called Empowering Yourself. I can't remember who the author is, but you know he he talks about success being about pie, like apple pie or pumpkin pie, P I E, and those three factors are, are part of your success. And those three things are what's your performance, what's your image, and what's your exposure. And the trick in the book, or part of the trick is, is argued that it's about what's the ratios of those things to each other. And so, for example, in large corporations, uh, you can talk about things like, um, you know, why is it sometimes that people that underperform might end up in senior positions mm-hmm. or end up getting promoted? And sometimes that you can see, you can draw that back to exposure or maybe image. Um, there's a whole bunch of things, but, you know, you can't neglect things like performance, but I think that understanding what your ratios and are you spending enough time delivering, so the performance, are you spending enough time deliberately thinking about what you want your image to be? And are you being deliberate about spending your time you know, developing your networks and creating that exposure? I think that's uh, it, it's a very simple rule to live by, but making sure you're delivering on those three things and making sure you're getting those three things in in the correct ratio, I think are going are gonna to be very useful for you. And I think most of us from an outside perspective, if we see 
three things, one of them performance, the second image, and the third exposure. I think most of us think that if someone was to succeed, performance would account for 90% of that. Image would account for maybe five, and then exposure would account for maybe five. But you're saying that that's actually the opposite. I'd say that, you know, for a lot of industries, performance is a threshold gate. You need a certain level of performance to just to stay. <laughs> but I think that people underestimate the ratios of um, uh, performance, image, exposure. I know I'd probably rank them uh, least to most important is probably image performance with exposure being the most important. And I think um, I have very little data to to correlate this with, but from conversations I've had with young female entrepreneurs, I find they often get some of these ratios well out of whack in terms that they're so dedicated in producing in the performance piece and doing a really good job. Sometimes they can lose out to folks that are spending time thinking about things like image and exposure. And so that's one of the things I, you know, we, we often talk about and, uh, you know, it's not they don't do a good job. It's just what's the ratio of their performance, things like developing a network of supporters that will help them get to that next level. You brought up books already, so I want to turn to that. What's the best book you've read recently on entrepreneurship um, or leadership and why? Uh, two books, I think. Uh, one is a really good book by a lady called Annie Duke uh, called Thinking in Bets. And uh, I think all credence goes to Joe Rogan for introducing me to her on, on the podcast. <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, every decision you take contains an element of risk. And how do you manage and think about that in terms of risk? So I, I really like that approach. And I think that's something that could work pretty well for entrepreneurs. Um, the other one, which is something I shared with Jared earlier on, which sounds very weird and woolly, is um, a book by René Girard talking about you know, things hit, hidden since the foundation of the world. And it talks about mimesis and, and how we copy each other subconsciously. And in the process of copying each other, that leads us into conflict. And how do we resolve that conflict and how that defines some of the structures in our lives. So uh, an example might be, you know, I go into the Apple store and Jared wants an Apple phone. Then I want an Apple phone, mainly because Jared wants it. But Jared gets the last one, and that's going to force us into a position of conflict. And so what are the structures that we build around ourselves to, to mitigate the conflict so it doesn't become all-out war? And I think that has some very interesting ramifications for the workplace, um, particularly things like scapegoating in the workplace and how we can maybe transfer scapegoating towards processes. But I'm still developing some of my thinking on that. But, but that's a very thick book. I do warn any readers before you get mm -hmm. there. That's... If you understand that in one sitting, I think uh, you are certainly a better person than I am. So, well, Chris, we're looking forward to you producing your own work on that, <laughs> and then one day someone's going to ask me what's my favorite book, and I'm going to say Chris Salmon's work. Oh, if only, oh, yes. if only. <laughs> what is the most important thing that you've learned in the last year that you think can massively impact our listeners here? Uh, two things. I think the first thing is the importance of sleep. You know, for most of my life, I'm that guy that's kind of genetically pre-programmed to sleep four and a half, five hours a night. And I did that probably pretty much for 10, 15 years of my life. And I felt okay. I felt good. And, and you know, it, it seemed to be working for me. And, you know, I kind of wore it as a badge of pride. I, although I was born in the 70s, I kind of grew up in the 80s. 
And um, growing up in the 80s, you had folks like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher talking about things like, you know, you can sleep when you're dead and get things done now. And then I look back and after listening to some folks like Matthew Walker, who published a great book on sleep, uh, there's some strong links between lack of sleep and um, dementia and Alzheimer's and old age. Mm. Um, So I think, I mean, that's from a selfish point of view, I think there was that. The same thing is when I started sleep, trying to sleep and be deliberate about sleeping a full eight hours, um, I ended up feeling much better and being more productive. I think the last thing is this realization that I think pretty much every animal in nature sleeps. So if you buy into this idea of, of evolutionary advantage and survival of the fittest and what have you, what's the evolutionary advantage in every creature on the planet spending out several hours of their lives being vulnerable to attack from predators. There's got to be some kind of strong evolutionary advantage that gives. And so that's something I'm still looking into, but I do know that that's been something that's drastically changed the quality of, of my life in the last year. So, you know, we're surrounded by messages telling us to get up at, at 4, 4, 4.05 a.m. Or, or pictures of someone's watch on Instagram. And, you know, that works but don't burn the candle at both ends. Maybe just be mindful about going to bed earlier too. Yeah. And I think the other thing really is around this concept of dimensionality that you, know, you don't have to be perfect out the gate. Just do something. You can evolve to be where you want to be further down the road. That's great. Uh, quickly, do you think that there's anything that's holding you back from even higher levels of success right now? So I think I'm doing pretty darn well right now. So I'm actually really happy. Thank you. I'm really happy with where things are in my life. But now I'm facing a classic problem, which is my time is in high demand. And so what I don't do is spend enough time um, maintaining my connections. And so, you know, I, I have a saying that I use time and time again, which is I don't burn bridges. I just let them structurally degrade over time. <laughs> and so... Um, I've got to be very mindful and uh, intentful about making time to maintain my, my connection network. So I have a pretty big network uh, connection network on LinkedIn, but part of the deal is that I do not add anyone to LinkedIn that I have not either worked with or had co- several coffees with. So I know everyone in my connection, in my network, but now I'm up to several thousand people, so I need to be mindful about... Um, Maintaining those connections, it's a bit of an embarrassment of riches. So, uh, yeah, that's what I need to be more mindful about. Well, Chris, I'm on the theme of building connections and maintaining connections. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. You are someone that is and has for a very long time achieved really significant things in this world. And so I'm really grateful that you were interested in sitting down with us today. If you, the listener, want to learn more about Chris... You can find him on LinkedIn at Chris Salmon YYC. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's is a pleasure. And uh, you know, if any of your listeners want to reach out, please feel free. Um, at least meet for a coffee. It'd be no nice. Great. And hopefully they'll be able to add you on LinkedIn one day. <laughs> but only after the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Chris. I hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you got some lessons from this that you can apply to your own health, wealth, or relationships. I created this podcast to help myself learn from those that came before me. And now I want to pass these lessons on to you to hopefully help you on your journey. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. 
If you like this content, then please subscribe and continue listening for our weekly episodes.